Chapter 9, Part 1 of The Swiss Family Robinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Swiss Family Robinson by Johann R. Wies. Chapter 9, Part 1. The winds at length were lulled. The sun shot his brilliant rays through the riven clouds. The rain ceased to fall. Spring had come. No prisoners set at liberty would have felt more joy than we did, as we stepped forth from our winter abode, refreshed our eyes with the pleasant verdure around us, and our ears with the merry songs of a thousand happy birds, and drank in the pure, balmy air of spring. Our plantations were thriving vigorously. The seed we had sown was shooting through the moist earth. All nature was refreshed. Our nest was our first care. Filled with leaves, and broken and torn by the wind, it looked indeed dilapidated. We worked hard, and in a few days it was again inhabitable. My wife begged that I would now start her with the flax, and as early as possible I built a drying oven, and then prepared it for her use. I also, after some trouble, manufactured a beetle-reel and spinning-wheel, and she and Franz were soon hard at work, the little boy reeling off the thread his mother spun. I was anxious to visit Tentholm, for I feared that much of our precious stores might have suffered. Fritz and I made an excursion thither. The damage done to Falkenhurst was as nothing compared to the scene that awaited us. The tent was blown to the ground, the canvas torn to rags, the provisions soaked, and two casks of powder utterly destroyed. We immediately spread such things as we hoped yet to preserve in the sun to dry. The pinnace was safe but our faithful tub-boat was dashed in pieces, and the irreparable damage we had sustained made me resolve to contrive some safer and more stable winter-quarters before the arrival of the next rainy season. Fritz proposed that we should hollow out a cave in the rock, and though the difficulties such an undertaking would present appeared almost insurmountable, I yet determined to make the attempt. We might not, I thought, hew out a cavern of sufficient size to serve as a room— but we might at least make a cellar for the more valuable and perishable of our stores. Some days afterward we left Falconhurst with the cart laden with a cargo of spades, hammers, chisels, pickaxes, and crowbars, and began our undertaking. On the smooth face of the perpendicular rock I drew out in chalk the size of the proposed entrance, and then, with minds bent on success, we battered away. Six days of hard and incessant toil made but little impression. I do not think that the hole would have been a satisfactory shelter for even Master Knips, but we still did not despair, and were presently rewarded by coming to softer and more yielding substance. Our work progressed, and our minds were relieved. On the tenth day, as our persevering blows were falling heavily, Jack, who was working diligently with a hammer and crowbar, shouted, "'Gone, father! Fritz, my bar has gone through the mountain!' "'Run around and get it!' laughed Fritz. "'Perhaps it has dropped into Europe. You must not lose a good crowbar.' "'But really, it is through. It went right through the rock. I heard it crash down inside. Oh, do come and see!' he shouted excitedly. We sprang to his side, and I thrust the handle of my hammer into the hole he spoke of. It met with no opposition— I could turn it in any direction I chose. Fritz handed me a long pole. I tried the depth with that. 
nothing could I feel. A thin wall, then, was all that intervened between us and a great cavern. With a shout of joy the boys battered vigorously at the rock. Piece by piece fell, and soon the hole was large enough for us to enter. I stepped near the aperture, and was about to make a further examination, when a sudden rush of poisonous air turned me giddy, and, shouting to my sons to stand off, I leaned against the rock. When I came to myself I explained to them the danger of approaching any cavern or other place where the air has for a long time been stagnant. "'Unless air is incessantly renewed, it becomes vitiated,' I said, "'and fatal to those who breathe it. "'The safest way of restoring it to its original state "'is to subject it to the action of fire. "'A few handfuls of blazing hay thrown into this hole may, "'if the place is small, sufficiently purify the air within "'to allow us to enter without danger.' "'We tried the experiment. "'The flame was extinguished the instant it entered.' Though bundles of blazing grass were thrown in, no difference was made. I saw that we must apply some more efficacious remedy, and sent the boys for a chest of signal rockets we had brought from the wreck. We let fly some dozens of these fiery serpents, which went whizzing in and disappeared at apparently a vast distance from us. Some flew like radiant meteors round, lighted up the mighty circumference, and displayed— as by a magician's wand, a sparkling, glittering roof. They looked like avenging dragons driving a foul, malignant fiend out of a beauteous palace. We waited for a little while after these experiments, and I then again threw in lighted hay. It burned clearly. The air was purified. Fritz and I enlarged the opening, while Jack— springing on his buffalo, thundered away to Falconhurst, to bear the great and astonishing news to his mother. Great must have been the effect of Jack's eloquence on those at home, for the timbers of the bridge were soon again resounding under the swift but heavy tramp of his steed, and he was quickly followed by the rest of our party in the cart. All were in the highest state of excitement. Jack had stowed in the cart all the candles he could find, and we now, lighting these, shouldered our arms and entered. I led the way, sounding the ground as I advanced with a long pole, that we might not fall unexpectedly into any great hole or chasm. Silently we marched, the mother, the boys, and even the dogs, seeming overawed with the grandeur and beauty of the scene. We were in a grotto of diamonds, a vast cave of glittering crystal, the candles reflected on the walls a golden light, bright as the stars of heaven, while great crystal pillars rose from the floor like mighty trees, mingling their branches high above us, and drooping in hundreds of stalactites, which sparkled and glittered with all the colors of the rainbow. The floor of this magnificent palace was formed of hard, dry sand, so dry that I saw at once that we might safely take up our abode therein, without the slightest fear of danger from damp. From the appearance of the brilliant crystals round about us, I suspected their nature. I tasted a piece. This was a cavern of rock-salt. There was no doubt about it. Here was an unlimited supply of the best and purest salt. But one thing detracted from my entire satisfaction and delight. Large crystals lay scattered here and there, which, detached from the roof, had fallen to the ground— this, if apt to recur, would keep us in constant peril. 
I examined some of the masses, and discovered that they had been all recently separated, and therefore concluded that the concussion of the air occasioned by the rockets had caused their fall. To satisfy ourselves, however, that there were no more pieces tottering above us, we discharged our guns from the entrance, and watched the effect. Nothing more fell. Our magnificent abode was safe. We returned to Falconhurst with minds full of wonder at our new discovery, and plans for turning it to the best possible advantage. Nothing was now talked of but the new house, how it should be arranged, how it should be fitted up. The safety and comfort of Falconhurst, which had at first seemed so great, now dwindled away in our opinion to nothing. It should be kept up, we decided, merely as a summer residence, while our cave should be formed into a winter house and impregnable castle. Our attention was now fully occupied with this new house. Light and air were to be admitted, so we hewed a row of windows in the rock, where we fitted the window cases we had brought from the officers' cabins. We brought the door, too, from Falconhurst, and fitted it in the aperture we had made. The opening in the trunk of the tree I determined to conceal with bark, as less likely to attract the notice of wild beasts or savages, should they approach during our absence. The cave itself we divided into four parts. In front, a large compartment into which the door opened, subdivided into our sitting, eating, and sleeping apartments the right-hand division containing our kitchen and workshop, and the left our stables. Behind all this, in the dark recesses of the cave, was our storehouse and powder magazine. Having already undergone one rainy season, we knew well its discomforts, and thought of many useful arrangements in the laying out of our dwelling. We did not intend to be again smoke-dried. We therefore contrived a properly built fireplace and chimney. Our stable arrangements, too, were better, and plenty of space was left in our workshop that we should not be hampered in even the most extensive operations. Our frequent residence at Tentholm revealed to us several important advantages which we had not foreseen. Numbers of splendid turtles often came ashore to deposit their eggs in the sand, and their delicious flesh afforded us many a sumptuous meal. When more than one of these creatures appeared at a time, we used to cut off their retreat to the sea, and, turning them on their backs, fasten them to a stake, driven in close by the water's edge, by a cord passed through a hole in their shell. We thus had fresh turtle continually within our reach, for the animals throve well thus secured, and appeared in as good condition, after having been kept thus for several weeks, as others when freshly caught. Lobsters, crabs, and mussels also abounded on the shore, but this was not all, an additional surprise awaited us. As we were one morning approaching Tentholm, we were attracted by a most curious phenomenon. The waters out at sea appeared agitated by some unseen movement, and as they heaved and boiled, their surface, struck by the beams of the morning sun, seemed illuminated by flashes of fire. Over the water where this disturbance was taking place hovered hundreds of birds, screaming loudly, which ever and anon would dart downward, some plunging beneath the water, some skimming the surface. Then again they would rise and resume their harsh cries. The shining, sparkling mass then rolled onward, and approached in a direct line our bay, followed by the feathered flock above. We hurried down to the shore to further examine this strange sight. 
I was convinced as we approached that it was a shoal or bank of herrings. No sooner did I give utterance to my conjecture than I was assailed by a host of questions concerning this herring bank, what it was, and what occasioned it. A herring bank, I said, is composed of an immense number of herrings swimming together. I can scarcely express to you the huge size of this living bank, which extends over a great area many fathoms deep. It is followed by numbers of great ravenous fish, who devour quantities of the herrings, while above hover birds, as you have just seen, ready to pounce down on stragglers near the top. To escape these enemies, the shoal makes for the nearest shore, and seeks safety in those shallows where the large fish cannot follow. But here it meets with a third great enemy. It may escape from the fish, and elude the vigilance of sharp-sighted birds, but from the ingenuity of man it can find no escape. In one year millions of these fish are caught, and yet the rows of only a small number would be sufficient to supply as many fish again. Soon our fishery was in operation. Jack and Fritz stood in the water with baskets, and bailed out the fish, as one bales water with a bucket, throwing them to us on the shore. As quickly as possible we cleaned them, and placed them in casks with salt, first a layer of salt, and then a layer of herrings, and so on, until we had ready many casks of pickled fish. As the barrels were filled, we closed them carefully, and rolled them away to the cool vaults at the back of our cave. Our good fortune, however, was not to end here. A day after the herring fishery was over, and the shoal had left our bay, a great number of seals appeared, attracted by the refuse of the herrings which we had thrown into the sea. Though I feared they would not be suitable for our table, we yet secured a score or two for the sake of their skins and fat. The skins we drew carefully off, for harness and clothing, and the fat we boiled down for oil, which we put aside in casks, for tanning, soap-making, and burning in lamps. These occupations interfered for some time with our work at Rock House, but as soon as possible we again returned to our labor with renewed vigor. I had noticed that the salt crystals had for their base a species of gypsum, which I knew might be made of great service to us in our building operations as plaster. As an experiment I broke off some pieces, and, after subjecting them to great heat, reduced them to powder. The plaster this formed with water was smooth and white, and, as I had then no particular use to which I might put it, I plastered over some of the herring casks, that I might be perfectly certain that all air was excluded. The remainder of the casks I left as they were, for I presently intended to preserve their contents by smoking. To do this the boys and I built a small hut of reeds and branches, and then we strung our herrings on lines across the roof. On the floor we lit a great fire of brushwood and moss, which threw out a dense smoke, curling in volumes round the fish, and they, in a few days, seemed perfectly cured. About a month after the appearance of the herrings, we were favoured by a visit from other shoals of fish. Jack espied them first, and called to us that a lot of young whales were off the coast. We ran down, and discovered the bay apparently swarming with great sturgeons, salmon, and trout, all making for the mouth of Jackal River, that they might ascend it, and deposit their spawn among the stones. Jack was delighted at his discovery. 
"'Here are proper fish!' he exclaimed. "'None of your paltry fry. "'How do you preserve these sorts of fish? "'Potted, salted, or smoked?' "'Not so fast,' said I, "'not so fast. "'Tell me how they are to be caught, "'and I will tell you how they are to be cooked.' "'Oh, I'll catch them fast enough,' he replied, "'and darted off to Rock House.' While I was still puzzling my brains as to how I should set to work, he returned with his fishing apparatus in hand, a bow and arrow, and a ball of twine. At the arrowhead he had fastened a barbed spike, and had secured the arrow to the end of the string. Armed with this weapon he advanced to the river's edge. His arrow flew from the bow, and, to my surprise, struck one of the largest fish in the side. "'Help, father, help!' he cried as the great fish darted off, carrying arrow and all with it. Help, or he will pull me into the water. I ran to his assistance, and together we struggled with the finny monster. He pulled tremendously, and lashed the water around him, but we held the cord fast, and he had no chance of escape. Weaker and weaker grew his struggles, and at length, exhausted by his exertions and loss of blood, he allowed us to draw him ashore. He was a noble prize, and Fritz and Ernest, who came up just as we completed his capture, were quite envious of Jack's success. Not to be behindhand, they eagerly rushed off for weapons themselves. We were soon all in the water, Fritz with a harpoon, Ernest with a rod and line, and I myself armed like Neptune with an iron trident, or, more properly speaking, perhaps, a pitchfork. Soon the shore was strewn with a goodly number of the finest fish. Monster after monster we drew to land. At length Fritz, after harpooning a great sturgeon full eight feet long, could not get the fish ashore. We all went to his assistance, but our united efforts were unavailing. The buffalo proposed my wife, and off went Jack for Storm. Storm was harnessed to the harpoon rope, and soon the monstrous fish lay panting on the sand. We at length, when we had captured as many fish as we could possibly utilize, set about cleaning and preparing their flesh. Some we salted, some we dried like the herrings, some we treated like the tunny of the Mediterranean. We prepared them in oil. Of the roe of the sturgeon I decided to form caviar, the great Russian dish. I removed from it all the membranes by which it is surrounded, washed it in vinegar, salted it, pressed out all the moisture caused by the wet-absorbing properties of the salt, packed it in small barrels, and stowed it away in our storehouse. I knew that of the sturgeon's bladder the best isinglass is made, so carefully collecting the air-bladders from all those we had killed, I washed them and hung them up to stiffen. The outer coat or membrane I then peeled off, cutting the remainder into strips, technically called staples. These staples I placed in an iron pot over the fire, and when they had been reduced to a proper consistency, I strained off the glue through a clean cloth, and spread it out on a slab of stone in thin layers, letting them remain until they were dry. The substance I thus obtained was beautifully transparent, and promised to serve as an excellent substitute for glass in our window frames. Fortunately, in this beautiful climate, little or no attention was necessary to the kitchen garden. The seeds sprang up and flourished without apparently the slightest regard for the time or season of the year. Peas, beans, wheat, barley, rye, and Indian corn seemed constantly ripe, 
while cucumbers, melons, and all sorts of other vegetables grew luxuriantly. The success of our garden at Tentholm encouraged me to hope that my experiment at Falconhurst had not failed, and one morning we started to visit the spot. As we passed by the field from which the potatoes had been dug, we found it covered with barley, wheat, rye, and peas in profusion. I turned to the mother in amazement. "'Where has this fine crop sprung from?' said I. "'From the earth,' she replied, laughing, "'where Franz and I sowed the seed I brought from the wreck. "'The ground was ready tilled by you and the boys. "'All we had to do was to scatter the seed.' "'I was delighted at the sight, and it augured well, I thought, "'for the success of my maize plantation. "'We hurried to the field. "'The crop had indeed grown well, and what was more, "'appeared to be duly appreciated.' A tremendous flock of feathered thieves rose as we approached. Among them Fritz espied a few ruffled grouse, and, quick as thought, unhooding his eagle, he started him off in chase, then sprung on his onager and followed at full gallop. His noble bird marked out the finest grouse, and, soaring high above it, stooped and bore his prey to the ground. Fritz was close at hand, and, springing through the bushes, he saved the bird from death, hooded the eagle's eyes, and returned triumphantly. Jack had not stood idle, for, slipping his pet fangs, he had started him among some quails who remained upon the field, and, to my surprise, the jackal secured some dozen of the birds, bringing them faithfully to his master's feet. We then turned our steps toward Falconhurst, where we were refreshed by a most delicious drink the mother prepared for us, the stems of the young Indian corn, crushed, strained, and mixed with water and the juice of the sugar-cane. We then made preparations for an excursion the following day, for I wished to establish a sort of semi-civilized farm at some distance from Falconhurst, where we might place some of our animals which had become too numerous with our limited means to supply them with food. In the large cart to which we harnessed the buffalo, cow, and ass, we placed a dozen fowls, four young pigs, two couple of sheep and as many goats, and a pair of hens and one cock-grouse. Fritz led the way on his onager, and by a new track we forced a passage through the woods and tall grasses toward Cape Disappointment. The difficult march was at length over, and we emerged from the forest upon a large plain covered with curious little bushes. The branches of these little shrubs and the ground about them were covered with pure white flakes. "'Snow! snow!' exclaimed Franz. "'Oh, mother, come down from the cart and play snowballs. "'This is jolly, much better than the ugly rain.' "'I was not surprised at the boy's mistake, "'for indeed the flakes did look like snow. "'But before I could express my opinion, "'Fritz declared that the plant must be a kind of dwarf cotton tree. "'We approached nearer and found he was right. "'Soft fine wool enclosed in pods,' and still hanging on the bushes or lying on the ground, abounded in every direction. We had indeed discovered this valuable plant. The mother was charmed, and, gathering a great quantity in three capacious bags, we resumed our journey. Crossing the cotton field, we ascended a pretty wooded hill. The view from the summit was glorious, luxuriant grass at our feet, stretching down the hillside, dotted here and there with shady trees, among which gushed down a sparkling brook, while below lay the rich green forest, with the sea beyond. 
What better situation could we hope to find for our new farm? Pasture, water, shade and shelter, all were here. We pitched our tent, built our fireplace, and leaving the mother to prepare our repast, Fritz and I selected a spot for the erection of our shed. We soon found a group of trees so situated that the trunks would serve as posts for our intended building. Thither we carried all our tools, and then, as the day was far advanced, enjoyed our supper, and lay down upon most comfortable beds, which the mother had prepared for us with the cotton. The group of trees we had selected was exactly suited to our purpose, for it formed a regular rectilinear figure, the greatest side of which faced the sea. I cut deep mortises in the trunks about ten feet from the ground, and again ten feet higher up to form a second story. In these mortises I inserted beams, thus forming a framework for my building, and then, making a roof of laths, I overlaid it with bark, which I stripped from a neighbouring tree, and fixed with acacia thorns, and which would effectually shoot off any amount of rain. While clearing up the scraps of bark and other rubbish for fuel for our fire, I noticed a peculiar smell, and stooping down I picked up pieces of the bark, some of which, to my great surprise, I found was that of the terebinth tree, and the rest that of the American fir. The goats, too, made an important discovery among the same heap, for we found them busily rooting out pieces of cinnamon, a most delicious and aromatic spice. "'From the fir,' said I to the boys, "'we get turpentine and tar.' and thus it is that the fir-tree becomes such a valuable article of commerce. So we may look forward to preparing pitch for our yacht, with tar and oil, you know, and cart-grease, too, with tar and fat. I do not know that you will equally appreciate the terebinth-tree. A gum issues from incisions in the bark which hardens in the sun, and becomes as transparent as amber. When burned it gives forth a most delicious perfume, and when dissolved in spirits of wine— forms a beautiful transparent varnish. The completion of our new farmhouse occupied us several days. We wove strong lianas and other creepers together to form the walls to the height of about six feet. The rest, up to the roof, we formed merely of a lattice-work of laths, to admit both air and light. Within we divided the house into three parts, one subdivided into stalls for the animals, a second fitted with perches for the birds, and a third, simply furnished with a rough table and benches, to serve as a sleeping apartment for ourselves when we should find it necessary to pay the place a visit. In a short time the dwelling was most comfortably arranged, and as we daily filled the feeding troughs with the food the animals liked best, they showed no inclination to desert the spot we had chosen for them. Yet, hard as we had worked, we found that the provisions we had brought with us would be exhausted before we could hope to be able to leave the farm. I therefore dispatched Jack and Fritz for fresh supplies. During their absence, Ernest and I made a short excursion in the neighborhood, that we might know more exactly the character of the country near our farm. Passing over a brook which flowed toward the wall of rocks, we reached a large marsh, and as we walked round it, I noticed with delight that it was covered with the rice-plant, growing wild in the greatest profusion. Here and there only were there any ripe plants, and from these rose a number of ruffled grouse, at which both Ernest and I let fly. Two fell, and Fangs, who was with us, brought them to our feet. 
As we advanced, Knips skipped from the back of his steed Juno, and began to regale himself on some fruit at a short distance off. We followed the little animal, and found him devouring delicious strawberries. Having enjoyed the fruit ourselves, we filled the hamper Knips always carried, and secured the fruit from his pilfering paws, with leaves fixed firmly down. I then took a sample of the rice seeds to show the mother, and we continued our journey. Presently we reached the borders of the pretty lake which we had seen beyond the swamp. The nearer aspect of its calm blue waters greatly charmed us, and still more so the sight of numbers of black swans, disporting themselves on the glassy surface, in which their stately forms and graceful movements were reflected as in a mirror. It was delightful to watch these splendid birds, old and young, swimming together in the peaceful enjoyment of life, seeking their food, and pursuing one another playfully in the water. I could not think of breaking in upon their happy, beautiful existence by firing among them, but our dog Juno was by no means so considerate, for all at once I heard a plunge, and saw her drag out of the water a most peculiar-looking creature, something like a small otter, but not above twenty-two inches in length, which she would have torn to pieces had we not hurried up and taken it from her. This curious little animal was of a soft, dark brown color, the fur being of a lighter shade under the body. Its feet were furnished with large claws, and also completely webbed, the head small, with deeply set ears and eyes, and terminating in a broad, flat bill, like that of a duck. This singularity seemed to us so droll that we both laughed heartily, feeling at the same time much puzzled to know what sort of animal it could possibly be. For want of a better, we gave it the name of the Beast with a Bill, and Ernest willingly undertook to carry it, that it might be stuffed, and kept as a curiosity. After this we returned to the farm, thinking our messengers might soon arrive, and sure enough in about a quarter of an hour Fritz and Jack made their appearance at a brisk trot, and gave a circumstantial account of their mission. I was pleased to see that they had fulfilled their orders intelligently, carrying out my intentions in the spirit, and not blindly to the letter. End of chapter 9, part 1, read by Kara Schallenberg on July 18, 2009, in San Diego, California.